turn to Romans chapter 2. All right, I've been uh, thinking about this for a little bit here. I think it's probably safe to say that I've identified our most popular pastime, but it's something that we never talk about, and that is judging others. Now, no one's going to say, oh, I, don't, I, don't, I do that, no, because we always want to conceal this, want to hide it, but the reality is we are really good at it. In fact, we spend so much time judging others and sizing people up and dismissing people that it becomes just kind of a way of life for us. We don't even think about it, but it happens all the time. We love to do this. It makes us feel good. And, and frankly, we, we always want to see ourselves a little bit better light than everybody else. And I've been thinking about this and looking at my own life, and I'll tell you what, yeah, it's pretty scary. I mean, just, it just shows up everywhere. So like yesterday, I had to merge onto I-35. I don't know if you know this, but Texas, you're supposed to move over a lane when you're supposed to go on there. And of course, here's the guy in a van, and I'm like, he's going to force me into the median. He's just, he's just cruising there, and he will not merge over. And, and I quickly am making all sorts of assessments about this guy's intellect and where he went to driving school and all this sort of thing. I'm not saying anything other than, come on, brother, you might let me in, you know, but, you know, and it's just, and it's going through my head. And I find myself doing these things as not only the driving, but even the parking. I was, uh, parking at a restaurant here, going to meet someone. And I'm like, how is it that you can't actually get the vehicle in between the white lines? You know what I'm saying? Like, you have to actually put your tires on white line. You need two parking spaces. And of course, you make all sorts of judgments about people when you see this. And, and I know I'm not alone. I'm sure you've had these experiences. You're, either you're in a store, uh, like if you're in the grocery store, if I'm in there, I, I'm kind of like, I got to get what I need and I want to get out. And I'm always looking for the 10 items or less line because I usually have 10 items or less, but you go there, and there's people, and there's at least three of them that have at least 15 things in there, you know, and like, what are you mathematically challenged? Can't you count? Do you need me to do this for you? Now, I don't say those things, but they're running through my head, and I'm making judgments all the time, and I know I'm not alone. I, I know from actually interviewing ladies that as, when a lady walks in a room, she's immediately sized up by all the other ladies, and they are making all sorts of judgments about her, what she looks like, what she's wearing, what kind of statements, how she conducts herself, and this is just a pattern. Guys do the same thing. We're always sizing people up, and whether we're trying to make ourselves feel superior, we do it out of pride or fear or just sheer ignorance, we are getting really good at judging others. And just by the way, this was really interesting. Uh, there was a book called Unchristian by David Kinnaman, and he highlights this statistic that nine out of ten young people who do not affiliate with the church and have not called Christ their Lord, nine out of ten, or 87 percent of them, that say that the term judgmental accurately describes Christians. We're good at it. In fact, we're really good at judging others. But one problem is we're not so good at judging ourselves. Now, there is a real danger to being a judgmental person. In fact, Romans chapter 2, as we make our way through this book, actually hits it right on the head. Look what he says in Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same thing. Now, what he's going to do is he makes his way here through chapter 2, and you're going to see a lot of this in the book of Romans. It's what's called diatribe. It is an ancient Greek teaching tool where they would actually like have a discourse with someone even though you can't see it. It's like they involve you in this conversation. They're going to raise issues, ask questions, and the same guy is going to answer it. Now, that's what he's going to find here, and he's going to say, 
you are without excuse if you're a judgmental person. Remember as we were in Romans chapter 1, if you survived last week, where he actually talks about the Gentile who does not know God, and he suppresses the truth about God. He rejects everything that is evident and points to God. Even in himself, he knows that there is a God. Be like, that's not vogue. That's not PC to believe in God. That won't make me cool. That won't fit into the crowd. I certainly won't get advancement if I'm one who confesses or, or says I believe in God. And so they push down every bit of evidence, where they see it in creation, wherever it shows up, And they not only do that, but when they actually reject God, they start reasoning within themselves, and they come up with their own speculations. And pretty soon what happens is they replace God. They're going to find an idol. Now, it may be, it may not be sticks and stones. I'm not too worried about a lot of folks bowing down to stone figurines, although that does happen in our country. It's widespread worldwide. But you're going to find an idol out of anything or anyone, whether it be success or sex or entertainment or what you do with your hobbies or how, what sort of individuals that you just idolize. You are going to find your sense of purpose, peace, identity, security in someone or something else. And if, if it will not be God, you have created something. It's your wealth. It's what you believe that you really have. It's your home. And what happens is God says, you reject me. You want to replace me? I will give you over. And remember, you saw that three different times last week. He, God literally gives people over to what they want. You want freedom? You want your sexual freedom? You want to kind of have entertainment to be your God? You want your own idols? I will give it to you. And literally, the consequence of sin is sin. And you literally become unraveled from within. It's like a deterioration that takes place in your life. And you realize depravity not only in your life, but you also realize a complete reprobation that takes place in society. And if you are a judgmental person, he says in chapter 2, verse 1, you're, uh, you have no excuse. Because in the same manner that you cast judgment on others, you yourself are going to be judged. Now, the self-righteous individual makes two serious errors. The first error is that they completely downplay God's standard of righteousness. The self-righteous individual believes that God only judges outward behavior, that activity that you do that could be seen, and that that's all that God is going to judge. But in reality, God not only looks at the external, but far more important, he looks at the internal, your heart, your mind, that drives your behavior. Remember when Jesus shows up on the scene and he has, gives his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount? A driving emphasis of that sermon is that God actually judges the heart. It's from the heart where immoralities come from, murder, anger, strife. So you didn't, you didn't actually kill anybody, but you assassinated their character hundreds of times in your mind. You didn't act out your adultery, but you sure played it over in your mind. God's, Jesus says, my righteousness actually addresses the issues of the heart, and not one of you is without excuse. In fact, when you looked at Romans chapter 1, verses 28 through 32, he's really talking about the attitudes of a person's heart. No one comes unscathed because we've all been disobedient to parents. We've invented evil. We've rejected God. At different times, we've become boastful and arrogant. So one of the big problems of the self-righteous individual is that they don't actually fully realize the standard by which God is going to bring judgment. The second is, they oftentimes see themselves far better than they really are. We have a way of doing that. 
We're pretty good at identifying the sin and the waywardness of others. Oh, you do that. You're miserable. How could you think that? How could you do those things? But in reality, when it comes to us, we got excuses. I was really tired. Oh, you know, it was a bad day. Or, you know, it's the lesser of two evils. What Paul is writing here, he's saying, guess what? Just in the same manner that you pass judgment on others, you are going to be judged because you practice the exact same thing. It's kind of like, you ever taken a ball, like one of those rubber balls or a baseball, and you throw it as hard against a wall as you can? And what happens? That rubber ball hits that wall, and it comes shooting back right at you, and it nails you. That's what happens as you judge others. It's going to come back, and you're going to be judged by it. So what is the description of how God is going to judge each person? Well, look at verse 2. He says, and we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. You see verse 2, he says, rightly falls, that could be translated according to truth. God sees the issues and the matters as they really are, and he's going to really bring judgment. This takes us all the way back to chapter 1, verse 18, where he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. It rightly falls on those who practice such things. And we have a way of focusing on the sin of others but we miss it in ourselves. I mean, you can work yourself up into a frenzy in your self-righteousness, right? How could those evil people do those sort of things? Ever happen to you? Your blood pressure is even rising, but yet that same behavior in you, you, uh, you dismiss it. It's not as big a deal. Francis Schaeffer, he's a theologian from the 20th century, uh, very sharp guy, when he was addressing this issue of, of judging and how God is going to be a, do, a, he actually had this image of like a tape recorder, like a recorder that would record everything that you said. And maybe if we were to update it today in today's standards, maybe it would be like a little video camera that caught everything you said, everything you did, and he recorded it. And what is going to happen is that God, at the end, when he actually brings judgment, he's just going to hit play, and you yourself will judge yourself by your own words, by what you have said. And so he says in verse 3, But do you suppose this, O man, that when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Come on, are you really thinking? You're passing judgment on people, but do you think that you will escape judgment? Absolutely not. And we can be really good at this. When the Jewish people heard this, and these Jewish Christians that would read this letter as they received it from Paul, and and they're in Rome, there would be a stellar example in their mind. Probably one of the most beloved guys of all the Bible, a real hero for them, was King David. And you remember King David? Not only he he was very successful, and God made all sorts of promises, but, but King David had some pretty significant sin. The Bible never glosses over sin. It never like downplays. It's like, yeah, we want our heroes to be good, and we don't want to talk about the sin realities in their life. For David, you remember he was the guy who uh, took over Bathsheba while her husband Uriah the Hittite is out fighting his war? And not only that, but he has this sexual relationship with her. She ends up becoming pregnant, and he's like, man, i got to do something about this. So he actually works it out where he's going to have her husband killed, and he tries a lot of different things. He can't do it. Finally, he, he works it out where this guy's actually going to get killed in war. He plans it out, and he lives hypocritically. All of this is put before him. 
And he's kind of living his life, and he kind of thought, like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to make it. And he marries this Bathsheba, and like, no one seems to know. But God knows. In 2 Samuel, uh, he actually, chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord sends Samuel, one of the prophets, and Samuel comes and says, hey, David, I, I want to tell you a little story. David's like, you know, I'm all ears, man. I'm a judge. Uh, tell me about it. He says, well, you know, there was this really rich man. He had all these sheep and lamb, cattle, man. He was the ultimate Texan, man. He had it all going for him. It was great. And he had this buddy come and visit him, and he wanted to impress him, and he was looking for some good quality food. And he couldn't pick from anything that he had. There was this poor guy, and he had this one little lamb, and, you know, it was the pet, family pet, and the kids all took care of it and stuff like that. It was the, really the cherished thing in the family. The rich man took that poor man's lamb and slaughtered it and fed it to him. Man. David just comes unglued. Man, that's terrible. In fact, he actually says, that man deserves to die. And then he goes, well, all right, well, he, better be, he better pay back fourfold what he did. And then Nathan said, hey, David, you're the man. And he confronts him on his sin. You, you took that woman? You had Uriah, your friend, the guy who would never be disloyal to you? You, you saw that he was killed. You're in charge, and you're the hypocrite. And God literally brings him undone. And he, you see, David could make good judgment. Did he call it right? Absolutely. He just couldn't see it in himself. And that's what Paul is addressing. We're really good at judging others. But don't you see that you are guilty of the exact same sin? This is the characteristic of a Pharisee. This is the hypocrisy that Jesus kept confronting. And so he says in verse 4, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? You see, God has been merciful, he's been tolerant, and he's been patient. Do you know why? Because his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. This was true of Israel. I mean, they had a beautiful land, they had the law, they had the priesthood, they had the temple. God blessed them, he provided for them. When they sinned, he was patient. When they rebelled, he addressed the issues, but he always fulfilled his promises. And they just kept rejecting him. Even after when, they, when God sent his son Jesus as their Messiah, the Messiah for the world, even after they saw that he was crucified, 40 years he was still patient with them before he brought destruction upon Jer Jerusalem. You need to know that God's goodness is meant to bring about repentance. Let's take it to you. Has God been good to you? All of you are clothed. Most of you have ate today. Most of you have a place to live. You've got food. You've got gas. Some of you have got jobs. You've got family. You've got people that care for you. God has been so very good to you. Do you know why? Because his kindness, look at verse 4, it's meant to lead to what? Repentance, a turning of 180 degrees where you are trusting Jesus. That's what it is all about. And he knows our heart, and he wants us to actually come to him. This is really interesting. As you go through the book of Romans, end of chapter 1, chapter 2, it's like the parable of the lost sons. Remember that in Luke chapter 15 where you got that one guy and this one son he goes listen man i don't want to be working here for you dad i just want my inheritance early dad cashes out gives the boy his stuff he takes off remember and he goes and he wastes it i mean he just has one party after another he spends money on prostitutes he drinks himself into oblivion he gets as many friends as money can buy and he just lives his life until his money runs out and then of course your friends go away some of you had to learn that the hard way 
Well, he sure did. And then, of course, there's this famine in the land, and he ends up working for a pig farmer, and he's, he wants to eat the food the pigs do. And, man, he comes to his senses like, man, my, my serv- the servants of my father have it better than me. I'm going to go back, and I'm just going to confess myself to him and say, listen, I'm unworthy to be your son. Just make me a slave. And, of course, he shows up, and, and the father, and he's been looking for him. He runs and wraps him up, and, man, it's far better than he ever imagined. He feeds him everything. They have this huge party. But remember, the father had two sons. There was an older son. He's the guy that you're going to read about here in Romans 2 and as we go in the first half of 3. He's the religious guy. He's the Pharisee. He's the guy that was doing everything his dad said, but his heart really didn't love the father. In fact, he resented the younger son, and he was just going through the motions. He was waiting for his inheritance too. He was waiting for his dad to die so he could take over. His heart wasn't right, and his father addresses it. That's what's going on here. There are two sons that are lost. Well, you're, you can be lost being wicked and wild, okay? And there are plenty of folks that way. But you know what? You can be just as lost being religious and judgmental and self-righteous. Now, God is going to bring judgment, and it's always going to be according to truth. It's actually what it really is. He's also going to bring, when he brings judgment, it's according to deeds. Look at verse 5. But because of your stubbornness, and that's a very interesting word. It's the word sclerosis. You ever heard of arteriosclerosis? What is that? Some of you, hopefully you don't have it. It's what? It's the hardening of arteries, right? And that's what he's saying here. Because of your stubbornness, your hard-heartedness and unrepentant heart, you will not turn and trust Jesus. You will not embrace the gospel. You're self-righteous. You keep suppressing the truth. Look what he says, verse 5. You are storing up wrath for yourself. God is going to bring a just judgment against your sin in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. God is going to bring about wrath, and you're going to see this, and it's fully displayed in the book of Revelation, where God brings about judgment. You will face a judgment for your sins if you'll not turn to Christ. And how does he judge? Well, he judges in your heart, okay? You're unrepentant in your heart, but look at verse 6 who will render to each person according to his, what? Deeds. God's judgment is always according to deeds. Salvation is always by grace through faith. It's about trusting in Christ and the fact that he has paid the penalty for your sin. Judgment is always according to deeds. Whether you're believers that'll be judged for reward, it's based on what you did. But if you're an unbeliever, you are right now putting Jesus on the sideline, you need to know that you are facing a judgment against your deeds. And what he's talking about here, it's like, it's kind of like he's revealing their heart. Your deeds are a reflection of what you really believe. Remember in Matthew chapter 7 on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this twice, you will know them by their fruits. The fruit of a person's life is indicative of what's going on in their life, specifically in their heart. And it's kind of like, we could, we could say it this way, apples on an apple tree prove life, but they do not provide life. When you see apples on an apple tree, you can safely assess that that is an apple tree, and it proves that it has life, but the apples themselves do not give the tree life. They're an outworking of it. And he's going to talk about two different types of people. Those who are believing the gospel, Romans 1, 16 and 17. There are certain deeds that come from their life. 
And you're going to find that in verses 7 and 10. And you've got the unredeemed, those who have yet to trust Christ or refuse him. There's fruit that comes from their life, but you will know them by their fruits. And so he's going to, he's going to actually talk about that. So look at he says in verse 7. To those who by perseverance, by doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. If you are one who has trusted Christ, there are characteristics of your life. There is an idea that you seek for God's glory, that you look to honor him with your life. There is this desire to know the fullness of eternal life, life with God, because these are the deeds that come from a life that is trusting in Christ and the gospel. But there is also, if you are one who rejects him, look at verse 8 and 9. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. If you want to see two indicators that your heart is not right with God, if you'd really like to know, look at what he says in verse 8. Are you selfishly ambitious? Is life really about you? Are you into self-glorification? And notice what else he says and you do not obey the truth. There is an unwillingness to be instructed. You are not teachable. You are not willing to go God's way. You need to know that you're going to face a judgment for your deeds, and you're going to face God's wrath and indignation. And you cannot gloss it over. You need to know what's coming. He says, verse 9, for there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also the Greek. It doesn't matter if you've got a Jewish heritage. It doesn't matter if you're a wild and out-of-control Gentile. You're about as immoral as they come. Judgment is going to come. It's going to start with the Jews because they're the first ones to receive the actual realization that Jesus is the Messiah, and they're like, we don't want him. But it's also going to be followed up with the Greeks. And he says that there is no partiality with God. So he says... But if you're on verse 10, but there's going to be glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also the Greek. If your heart is right with God because you're trusting Christ, you're going to have glory, honor, and peace. But you need to know this, verse 11, there is no partiality with God. Literally, it speaks that God does not treat anyone based upon appearance. He sees it as it really is. Now, for the Jewish people, this is absolutely shocking. See, for the Jewish people, they actually thought that they would be spared God's judgment because God entered into a covenant with them, and they felt as long as they kept the law, they had physical copies of it, and they had scribes that were always keeping it, and to agree, they followed it because they were earning God's favor that they would be spared God's judgment. You need to know that you will face God's judgment if you reject his son. And that's why he's saying it's going to start with the Jew first and also the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. So let me just tell you one other thing you need to know about God's judgment. It's according to truth. It's always according to deeds. Salvation, forgiveness, always grace through faith, Old Testament, New Testament. But your judgment is always according to deeds. Let me give you one other thing. It's according to light received. He's going to blow them away in this final little section here by stating that You know, even the heathen guy or gal who doesn't know anything about God, doesn't have the law, may very well be judged less severely than you who, although having the law, have rejected it. Look at verse 12. 
For all who have sinned without the law also perish without the law. If you are a a person who's of non-Jewish faith, he's saying, and you don't know anything about God, and you don't have a Bible, you don't have the scriptures, and you could care less, you are going to perish without that law, okay? You will face a judgment. But all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. If you have God's word, you're going to be judged according to what God has written, and your judgment will be far more severe than those who have not had it. Now, the law was meant to have a certain effect on a person's life. The law was meant to function like a mirror. You know how you look in a mirror and you can see like, okay, this is out of place here. Got to fix this up here. Maybe if you're a gal, you're like, okay, makeup applied here. Look all better, right? Your mirror, that mirror tells you, whoa, correction needed. There's something that's not quite right. That's what a mirror does, all right? But what the Jewish people had done, instead of the law being a mirror where they saw their unrighteousness and their need for Messiah, they turned the law into a ladder that they would climb up. And what they would be able to do is they would be earning God's righteousness by keeping it, and they could also turn down and look and see everybody that was beneath them according to their evaluation and look down upon them. And so the Gentiles who didn't even have the law, that's why they considered them dogs. They didn't want to touch them, didn't want to be near them, okay? Why? They were judgmental people. And that's how they did it, because they were earning God's favor. They were climbing the ladder. And just, by the way, there are a lot of quote-unquote Christians that have done the exact same thing with the Bible. They're not trusting in Christ and just praising God for salvation. They actually are judging others. They're earning God's favor by what they are keeping, and they got all these rules of do's and don'ts. And they're highly legalistic, and they're very judgmental. And by the way, they're very miserable people, okay? Because they failed even their own standards because they've missed the gospel of grace. But that's what's happening here. And so he says in verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law, they'll also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. It's not enough that you hear it but that you actually believe and it becomes an outworking of your life where the deeds of your life reflected that you actually have a devotion and a relationship with Christ. And so he says, verse 14, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. Now you're going, whoa, wait a second here. What's going on here? I'll explain it here. Let's, let's read this next verse and let's talk about what he's saying here because it's pretty profound. He says, verse 15, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So what he's saying there is that the Gentiles who don't have the law, they they actually start behaving and doing the things of the law, not having God's word. What he's saying is there's kind of almost like a universal moral code that God has intrinsically placed in an individual that you have some understanding, and you see this in every culture, of a knowledge of right and of wrong, okay? Now, it's not perfect, but for instance, in cultures, you know that it's wrong to lie, to steal, to commit adultery, and to murder, and you also know that you should do things like honor your parents. Where does this morality come from? And that's why he says it's not that they have the law, verse 15, written in their hearts, but what does he say? The work of the law. The law 
was meant to bring about certain behavior that reflected God's morality. They don't have that law. They don't have God's law, but they do have a law unto themselves where they have a certain sense of right and wrong. And it says, like he says in verse 15, it's written in their hearts. They actually know these things. So it's like their law. It's a law that actually comes from God, and their conscience bears witness. What is a conscience? Your conscience is like a warning system that every single person has, and it's based upon your highest standard and understanding of right and wrong. And so even if you're a non-believer, and you could be about as radically wicked as they come, you still have a conscience that functions and says, you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't be here. You shouldn't say this. And it convicts you. I know before I became a Christian, there were things that I involved myself in and my conscience like, eh, eh, eh. It's based on your highest understanding of right and wrong, whether that's something you picked up from mom and dad or however you got it. But when you become a Christian, you actually, your conscience actually becomes heightened because you start refilling your heart and life with truth. And it's like God uses, the Spirit of God uses the conscience to tell you, no, you shouldn't do this. But you need to know that even the non-believer has a conscience. And it functions. And it warns. And what he's saying in verse 15, that, they, that shows not only the work of law written in their hearts, their conscience will bear witness. And one other thing, their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. God will bring a judgment based upon the light of the revelation that they had. So if you didn't have God's law, there was like an inner law. You're going to be judged by that. You're also going to be judged by the violations of your conscience. You knew what to do or what not to do, and you violated it. And notice what else he says, and their thoughts alternately accusing or defending them. Your thoughts will accuse you or defend you, even if you never had God's word. Now, that doesn't, this doesn't imply that your conscience is perfect and that you're going to be always exempt or it's a perfect moral guide. What he is saying is that you are beyond excuse. You're going to face judgment whether you have the law or you have kind of more of like a universal moral law. God is going to show that every single person is a sinner and God forgets nothing. Look at verse 16. He says, For on the day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Jesus, established by the Father, is the judge and he is going to judge the deeds of every unbeliever, and he is going to actually look at the secrets of their heart. If you want to see what this looks like, Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 11, after the millennial kingdom, Christ the judge is put before, and all people are brought before him, and all those who have, whose name is not written on the Lamb's book of life, who've never trusted Christ, are before him, and the books are open, and everything is disclosed. Even the secrets of your heart, even the, even the things that you're like, ah, oh, man, no one really knows this but me, okay? Or in that other person. Um, and I'm hoping that God's forgetting these things. And I've been able to get by for years without ever really facing the consequence of that decision at work or that, of those things that I engaged in or that inappropriate relationship I had. I think I've got away with it. In fact, we've moved. It's all behind me. God says, I'm going to judge it. And it's laid bare and open to me, and it will be the scandal of heaven, your secret sins. Frankly, most of the stuff that we've done, we forgot, right? Now, some of us, we go, man, it'd really be good if I could remember more. And you hear people saying, like, man, I wish I could just remember so much more. I'm not so sure that's such a good thing, is it? 
Well, there's a, a pretty interesting situation. Uh, maybe you've heard about this woman named Jill Price. She's become uh, quite the study of the medical community. She has what the doctors are calling superior autobiographical memory or hyperthymesia. It's the it's a condition, it's extremely rare. There's about 20 people they've identified that have this. In the case of Jill Price, everything from age 14 that has happened in her life or that she's done, she has complete recall on. She can remember all the details. She remembers everything about it. The University of California has studied her now for six years, and they've made all these evaluations to authenticate that this woman knows everything and remembers everything that's taken place in her life. Now, she actually can remember some of the good things that have happened, and she does this often. She tries to remember these things because she is literally paralyzed by all of her bad memories. Every bad decision, every awkward situation, every insult, every excruciating embarrassment, she always has coming to mind, and she remembers all the details. She rarely can actually sleep well. She's paralyzed and assaulted by all these things that she remembers. How would you like to live that way? I mean, all of a sudden, like, getting older and forgetting things is like, that's good, right? Would you like to remember everything? Let me tell you one who does. God. He knows it all. He is going to bring judgment upon your deeds. And there is no escape unless you're trusting in Christ. Because trusting in Christ and his gospel is the only way that you and I can escape the wrath of God. And notice what he says in verse 16, on the day when according to my gospel, when the gospel about Jesus becomes your gospel, my gospel, that's where transformation takes place. That's when you move from death to life, where you no longer face God's wrath against sin because it has actually been placed upon his son. That's where life is, and that is his gospel. When we're sharing the gospel with people, a lot of times we avoid the idea of how serious God takes sin and how serious the judgment is. It's like we want to gloss over that. Don't you want Jesus just to be your best friend? Wouldn't you like him in your corner? Don't you want a friend like Jesus? Those things are all true, but you need to know that he is also judge. And he will bring into account everything, even the secrets of men's hearts. It's only in trusting in Christ we're going to escape this wrath. Now on the March 26, 2000 in Seattle, there's a pretty significant event that took place. And Seattle has this famed kingdom, okay? And it had been for 24 years. This is where the, the Seahawks played, the Mariners played, sometimes the Seattle Supersonics. They all played in the kingdom. But they decided they needed some better venues, okay? And this kind of masterpiece that had been a part of the Seattle skyline for many years, they decided they were going to destroy. And they hired a company, the Controlled Demolition Incorporated. They had blown up 7,000 buildings. They had done this before. They were excellent at what they did. And so they show up with all their engineers and all their folks, and they get that, that building all set up, all 25,000 tons of it, ready to be completely demolished. And they evacuated many of the blocks all the way around the kingdom. Uh, they had sent out warnings. They did all sorts of inspections. And they had a big public address system where they had a countdown. It wasn't just for effect. They wanted to make sure that everybody was far, far away. They had radios on every single one of their employees to make sure that they were all clear because when this hit zero, this baby was going to blow apart. Do you know why they went to such great lengths to make sure that everybody was far away from this? Because if you're anywhere close or you're inside, you don't make it. There's not a thought like, well, maybe you'll come through the rubble. No, you die. You can't make it if you're inside. 
And that's why God has sent Jesus. You can't make it. I don't care if you're living as wild as you can, you're involved in all sorts of immorality, you, you inebriate your pain with your drugs and your drinking, you're just trying to entertain yourself through life, you move from one bad relationship to another and you're the cause of it, or you're a real religious person and you shine your Bible before you show up to church and you always put a good faith forward, but you have never come to a place of trusting in Christ, you're inside and you face God's wrath. That's why he's given us his son. And your deeds, our deeds and our attitudes, they reveal if we're really trusting Christ in our hearts. And so today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, but trust in him. For in him is life, forgiveness, and he is a refuge for all those who are trusting in him. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for an amazing passage of scripture. You literally lay bare that which is to happen, that you will judge us based on our deeds and our own standards that we, we actually record, that we actually say these things. We'll be judged by them. And if we have the law and we know about your word, we're going to be judged by that. But if we have Christ, all the just wrath against sin, the wages of sin is death, has been paid by him. And we're forever grateful, and we're trusting in him completely. And if there is someone here today who's never actually done that, would they just pray with me and say, Father, I, I get it. And I see my waywardness, and I see that you even know the secrets of my heart. And I turn from my sin and my suppressing truth about you. I've, I've known about you, and I've been pushing it down. I, today, I'm trusting Jesus, and I'm turning from my sin. I confess my need for you. Would you fill me with your life? Would you lead me? And may I know the goodness of the Lord. And for all of us, Lord, help us to be mindful we're all cut from the same bulk of cloth. If it wasn't apart from, it wasn't your grace and your mercy in our life, we'd be heading down the same tragedy. So fill us with mercy and fill us with the rejoicing of your gospel and in your son. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.